Hi, dance friends, and welcome to the Dance Edit Podcast. I'm Margaret Fuhrer. I'm Courtney Escoyne. And I'm Lydia Murray. We are editors at Dance Media, and in today's episode, we'll be discussing America's Cultural Treasures, which is the game-changing new philanthropic initiative that's granting millions of dollars to BIPOC arts organizations. We'll be thinking out loud about the return of dance reviews as critics begin to weigh in on pandemic-era performances. We'll be talking about Tanqueray, the dancer whose incredible stories of New York City's 1960s and 70s burlesque scene, um, as told to humans of New York, have earned her a devoted internet fandom. And we'll be hearing a message from choreographer Heidi Duckler, a pioneer of site-specific dance whose company is celebrating its 35th anniversary this year. Uh, But before we get to it, just a little light housekeeping. We'd like to ask you all to take a minute to rate and review and subscribe to us on your podcast listening platform of choice, whether that's Apple Podcasts or Spotify or one of the many other varied options. We're on them all. Um, First, because we, as we've said before, we truly value your input. We want to hear your thoughts and opinions, whether they're positive or not so positive, but also because sharing those thoughts will make it easier for other dance devotees to discover and hopefully join this great little community we have going of dance nerds. So if you have a minute or not even a minute, like a cool 15 seconds, please do give us a rating and subscribe. Um, So now it's time for our weekly dance headline rundown. Let's get right into it. Courtney, you want to do the honors? Yeah, so we're starting with something intense this week. Heavy. Uh, So the New York City ballet photo sharing scandal is back in the news after a judge dismissed the vast majority of the charges in plaintiff Alexandra Waterbury's case at the end of last week. Charges against New York City Ballet, School of American Ballet, current principal Amar Ramasar, and former principal Zachary Catazzaro were dismissed. However, one claim against former principal Chase Finley remains. There's a lot to be said here, and I don't think we can quite do it justice in this amount of time. Yeah, I think it would be a separate podcast episode, but it is an important story. Please do go read um, the New York Times article about it. We'll link to that in our episode description. Worth investigating. The release date for Steven Spielberg's remake of West Side Story has been postponed from December 18th of this year to December 10th, 2021. Oh, not surprising, but a bummer. Yeah, remaining in suspense. But New York City Center's ever-popular annual festival, Fall for Dance, is going digital this year. It's smaller and more New York City-centric than usual, but there's a lot to look forward to, including a new solo by Jamar Roberts, a collaboration between Camille Brown and Dormisha, a solo for Calvin Royal III by Kyle Abraham, and a new Christopher Wielden Padida for, get this, David Halberg and Sarah Mearns. Uh, Per usual, tickets will be $15, and now you don't have to be in New York City to see it. You don't, although they will be filming this live on the New York City Center stage. So there's also that element of live performance happening that's we've been missing so much. I love that you can see great dance from all over the world, right in the comfort of your own home. Accessibility. Yes, exactly. Uh, BTS's week-long residency on The Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon kicked off Monday night. They performed their latest hit, Dynamite, alongside Fallon and The Roots, plus a never-before-seen performance of their 2018 hit, Idol, outside Gyeongbokgung Palace, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, in Seoul, South Korea. And I'm trying to turn uh, Courtney into an army. It's going to happen, everyone. Mark my words. I feel like this podcast is actually a backdoor pilot for Lydia's BTS Standom podcast. Oh, I would subscribe in a second. <laughs> 
Uh, the Bolshoi has been back on stage over the last month, but an opera performance was recently canceled after two singers tested positive for COVID-19, and according to The Guardian, two members of the ballet and three crew members are currently isolating as well. Uh, the Metropolitan Opera has canceled its entire 2020 to 2021 season due to the COVID-19 pandemic and currently expects to reopen in September of next year. Uh, fun fact, the performance that they're opening with, I believe, is going to be co-directed by Camille Brown. Oh, yeah. Well, little good news to temper the bad. Indeed. And in other new good news, uh, the Royal Ballet has announced details of an ambitious comeback performance taking place on October 9th that will feature more than 70 dancers and its full orchestra live streamed from the Royal Opera House. Um, so couples and company stars who have formed quarantine bubbles so they can rehearse together will dance the planned pas de deux alongside other pieces drawn from the company's wide-ranging rep. Speaking of streaming, in August, um, Atlanta Ballet announced the cancellation of its live Nutcracker run for this year, but instead audiences can watch a recorded performance of the Nutcracker as a drive-in movie complete with Nutcracker-themed concessions and gift items for five nights in December. Actually sounds really fun. And if you are having trouble keeping track of all the rapid fire changes to various company seasons, good news. The Dance Data Project has launched an index of worldwide ballet programming designed to track changes and updates to company seasons. Which again, I think we all know are far more subject to change than usual these days. Uh, you can find that at dancedataproject.com. We'll link to it in the episode description. And James Whiteside, the ABT star who is also a pop singer under the name J.D. Dubs, has teamed up with The Trevor Project to cast a music video for his new song, Left Alone. The song is about Whiteside's experience coming out and dealing with mental health challenges. Uh, and Carol Palmgarten, founder of popular New York City studio Steps on Broadway, passed away last week after a long illness. Plans for a virtual memorial service will be announced in the coming weeks. She'll be dearly missed. So... Moving on from the headlines now, in our next segment, we'd like to talk about, well, actually one major headline, a huge recent announcement from the philanthropic world. Um, a collection of prominent foundations and philanthropists led by the Ford Foundation will donate more than $156 million to arts organizations run by and serving people of color. And the idea is both to help them recover from the pandemic, of course, but also to recognize that while they've sustained a level of artistic excellence, many of them have been historically marginalized and underfunded. They really felt the impacts of systemic racism financially. So the initial round of national grants, which range from $1 million to $6 million, will go to 20 organizations. And that list includes Ballet Hispanico, Alvinelli American Dance Theater, Dance Theater of Harlem, and Urban Bush Women. And there's also a regional initiative of multi-year grants. This is a big deal. This is absolutely so important. And in this era of proclaiming the value of POC-led arts organizations and POC artists, it's so important to see that translate into long overdue financial support. Um, and this initiative also ties back to the pledge that the Ford Foundation and four others made to increase their spending, which the New York Times reported on earlier this summer, which requires the, the organizations to borrow money, which is, of course, unusual. And as the Ford Foundation pointed out in a more recent New York Times article, Arts organizations that are led by and primarily serve people of color are facing a higher risk of permanent closure now. Yes. And while I think this is one of those things that on the surface level, this kind of looks like business as usual, right? Because uh, the way that the arts infrastructure in America is, is very much based in philanthropic giving. You are reliant on 
what can you convince people with a lot more money and resources than you to donate to the company and to the organization? As Lydia said earlier, in the early days of this podcast, capitalism gone capitalism. (laughs) However, what is so remarkable about this is that we're talking about organizations that, historically speaking, have not been able to get those major grants and that major attention, which you know, dates back to, frankly, a history of racial discrimination and the wealth gap among people of color in America. There's a lot of stuff to unpack here. But what this is doing is really, not only is it providing support to help these organizations stay afloat in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, when we all know arts organizations are struggling, and helping them to continue to grow after the pandemic. It's also making a huge statement about who deserves this level of funding. It's Mm -hmm. saying, yes, these organizations are important too. They've been overlooked for far too long and we cannot afford to lose them. And the other thing about funding, and we've all, I think, observed this as dance writers, uh, when you look at, you know, individual artists getting awards, you tend to, you get one and then you get another major one, another major one in really quick succession, because oftentimes having that track record helps you continue to get that support. And so this is essentially setting up these organizations that already have the work to back up their significance. They just need that track record of funding. And so this is basically saying like, here, look, they are worthy of funding. We're this major organization that only funds really important key things. Next. (laughs) I mean, I want to say kudos in particular to Ford Foundation President Darren Walker, because he has been a consistent and a powerful leader in the fight against these economic and racial disparities in the arts. He's made that a priority since he joined the Ford Foundation back in, I think, 2013. Bravo, this is a great step on that path. So now we'd like to talk for a bit about dance criticism, which is a topic that's essentially been undiscussable for the past six pandemic-thwarted months, dance companies are now beginning to unveil their new fall offerings, both digitally and in socially distanced in-person settings. And that means that we're starting to see a trickle, I mean, a, a slow trickle, but it is happening, of dance reviews returning to publications. So what does dance criticism mean now in this pandemic era? Because it feels like something has fundamentally shifted. And how has its function changed? And how do we approach it differently as readers at this point? And what are some of the challenges that come with evaluating dances that really can't be viewed in a vacuum, like dances where the context is inevitably an important aspect of the performance? So I'm going to make an argument here that in reality, nothing should have changed in terms of the way that dance criticism is written and in the terms of the importance of context. In my opinion, dance criticism, there are two key things it has to do. It should facilitate dialogue and understanding between the artists and the audience, particularly audience members who don't necessarily have the language to articulate the experience of a show. And it should create a historical record that rather than just telling us what happened, which is also very important and not all reviews actually do that. Thank you, Deborah Jowett. I could write sonnets (laughs) about Deborah Jowett, different podcast. Rather than just telling us what happened, it should tell us something about the world in which it happened and the ways that colored how the work was received. Someone who does this brilliantly is Siobhan Burke. Um, On Twitter, she held up this review of Eiko Otake dancing in Greenwood Cemetery against the last one she'd written six months ago about Scottish Ballet at the Joyce. And both are absolutely 
shadowed and shaded by the pandemic. The piece back in March by this feeling of, should I even be in a theater right now? Just days before theaters in New York shuttered. And this one that just very recently came out um, is shadowed by the reality of what the intervening time has done to New York City. And by the pandemic, we're still very much in the midst of. And that's what makes those pieces of dance criticism matter in the long term, is it's telling us something about what is it to be an audience member viewing this in this moment right now. Okay, retweet to all of that. That said, it seems like it's impossible for anyone, critics included, to separate their thoughts and feelings about the pandemic and the shutdown and everything happening in the wider world from their thoughts and feelings about the dance they're seeing. Mm. And what that means is that right now, to these critics, every dance inevitably reads as a commentary on the pandemic. And I don't think that's an invalid response because that's also the case for a lot of choreographers and dancers. So it is authentically part of the messages a lot of these dances are trying to convey. But dance offers infinite ways to approach that topic. And in criticism, that's a little bit trickier. So in a lot of these first works there, you know, we heard some throat clearing about like, hey, I'm watching this on a screen and it feels different, or we're doing dance outside now and it feels different, which is, again, a totally natural response. And important, I think, as you said, Courtney, in terms of documenting that feeling of those first performances back. But that kind of approach is pretty quickly going to become irrelevant and, and a little bit tiresome. So how otherwise do we address as critics the limitations and the advantages and the particularities of both digital dance viewing and distance dance viewing? Yes. How do we talk about dance on camera, for example? Because so much of this is happening through a screen. And oftentimes, as a dance critic who critiques stuff live, do you necessarily have the vocabulary to be talking about the filmic elements. Yeah, exactly. And so many choreographers are learning about and implementing these very sophisticated approaches to film that is part of the art that they're creating. How much should we expect of our dance critics? Should they be studying film techniques so that they're coming to these kinds of offerings with a more informed perspective? How much are we asking of them? And also, maybe what can we get from people who write about immersive theater? Because now, especially outdoor shows are becoming inherently site-specific in a lot of ways new and different voices. Yeah. I've been wondering, as dance becomes more accessible, what changes will we see in who actually you know, consumes dance criticism? But what will different groups or newcomers to dance get out of it? I feel like you know, in the pre-pandemic era, as interesting and exciting as it was to see dance for its own sake, there were other aspects of seeing live performance that contributed to the experience. It was social. It was something that you you know, it could do with people that you knew or wanted to get to know, or it could be a networking opportunity or, you know, a chance to be inspired creatively in a way that might have been partially a function of the space or the in-person performance format. And now those other qualities are kind of being stripped away. Um, and dance viewers have more choices since they're not limited by geography. So how many people are now going to kind of rely more on dance critics just to simply help them decide what's worth watching and subscribing to, in addition to kind of that deeper role that the critic has in relationship to the artist and the audience? Which is one of the reasons this conversation feels so important, because the stakes suddenly feel so high. First of all, because companies desperately need to sell tickets to these digital offerings. But also those reviews could potentially carry, as you're saying, Lydia, so much weight I mean, a good review could have potentially exponential effects on ticket sales since these dance events are not strictly local events. 
And something I am also curious about is because so much of this is happening online, right? So that also opens the door for critics and fledgling critics who wouldn't necessarily be writing about this specific company being able to add their voices to the mix. And it also opens the door to just dance enthusiasts talking about it on the internet. It's not like you're sitting in a dark theater watching this whole thing. You're you're sitting on your computer. Twitter's right there. We are live tweeting dance performances now. Yeah. Yeah. So is that going to democratize that process at all? Yeah, I feel like we're more frequently asking um, some of the questions that have already been asked in other areas of of arts criticism, like film and so forth. With the rise of social media, pretty much anyone can share their thoughts about different works of art and who is really considered a critic and what's the value. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, dense criticism feels both deeply relevant and like a deeply confused space right now, like a puzzle to be figured out. So we'd like to devote our next segment to Tanqueray, who is, has become an internet icon. And if you've already met Tanqueray via the Humans of New York project, you are almost undoubtedly a diehard fan. Beginning last fall, Tanqueray, who, who her real name is Stephanie Johnson, she started sharing unbelievably compelling, often very not safe for work, stories from her life as a burlesque dancer in the 60s and 70s. Um, she was sharing them with Brandon Stanton, who's the creator of Humans of New York. And the stories are full of resilience and humor, and they're animated by her frank and, and singular voice. So yes, unsurprisingly, she became an internet phenomenon. But we didn't hear from Tanqueray for almost a year. And then last week, Stanton announced that he'd be posting more quotes from her on Instagram as a fundraising effort because Johnson was in serious pain. Um, she required constant care and she was facing significant medical expenses. And the denizens of the internet did not disappoint. They donated more than $2.5 million to the GoFundMe campaign. So this is a great story about a great storyteller, but it's also shadowed by the financial and the career-related issues that Tanqueray faced in her complicated and, and difficult life, especially as she aged. So we want to talk about all of that. This story just made my week um, following <laughs> this was just really one of the highlights of 2020 for me. Um, so Tanqueray or Stephanie Johnson had a, a hugely positive response when Brandon Stanton shared her on Humans of New York last November, and readers were clamoring to hear more. He revealed more of her story in 33 posts, originally 32, but he added a bonus, and thousands of readers worldwide were enthralled by her story. Uh, she talked about growing up with an abusive mother, getting pregnant at a young age, going to prison unjustly, running away to New York City and becoming a go-go dancer in the 1960s, and then a burlesque dancer. But more recently, she had slipped on ice and fallen, and that led to um, injuries and health problems. But her story was such a powerful, honest, open display of resilience and ingenuity in the face of adversity. And stories like hers often don't get shared with mainstream audiences. And in the larger dance world, the history of exotic dancers is rarely acknowledged, probably because of its proximity to or status as sex work or the taboos and, and stigmas surrounding that kind of labor. But these performers mattered. A lot of the issues that she dealt with are things that concert and commercial dancers can relate to um, because youth is so important and strength and, and using your body while it's still in its prime is so important and dancers are not paid very much. And those same issues of planning for the future and not 
having stability necessarily um, in old age or when you get a little bit older, something that other dancers face as well. But getting back to the history of Black burlesque performers, before Tanqueray, there was Jean Idell, for example, who was credited with having been the first Black exotic fan dancer and was one of the first Black burlesque artists to perform at white clubs. And she started as a student at the Catherine Dunham School of Dance, went on to become a headliner at some of the top burlesque clubs in the country. There was Tony Elling, who had spent almost a decade as a telephone operator, but was never promoted, likely due to her race, and then decided to do burlesque and so forth. There, there are just so many women like this. And there are people who are preserving this history. There's um, the Burlesque Hall of Fame, and there are several other burlesque historians. But I'm just really happy that this is getting more attention and that Tinker Ray is getting the attention that she really deserves and getting to have her full humanity acknowledged and celebrated. Please go read the full Instagram series. Um, We'll link to that in the episode description. Like Lydia said, you'll learn a lot about the burlesque scene in New York City during the 60s and 70s, too, history that yeah, is all too frequently neglected and is fascinating and important. So now we have the next installment in our voice memo series. And this week, our message is from choreographer Heidi Duckler. Um, Her LA-based company, Heidi Duckler Dance, is turning 35 this year. And right now, pandemic restrictions are pushing a lot of dance makers to experiment with outdoor performances, you know, in which the place is part of the production. But Heidi has been a driving force in site-specific dance for decades. So this month, starting tonight, actually, Heidi Duckler dances marking its big anniversary with an event called The Quest, um, a series of 10 performances at different LA landmarks curated to represent the company's dedication to inclusiveness and justice. And you'll hear more about all that in her memo. Here she is. Hi there, Dance Edit. I'm excited to tell you about The Quest an artistic adventure I'm creating in celebration of our company's 35th anniversary. I'm Heidi Duckler, Artistic Director of Heidi Duckler Dance. We had been planning to create a visionary work in an iconic um, location in celebration of this milestone in 2020, but little did we know a pandemic would cloud over our world and forever change how we think of space, of time, and our relationship to each other. Not only did we pivot and adapt because, well, as a site-specific company, we're pretty good at that, but this time we needed to completely reorient ourselves to new realities that were being invented and reinvented every day. Speaking like an Angelino, it was like living in a constant earthquake, the ground unstable, You didn't know what or who to believe, and no one could say what was happening for sure. The one thing I knew was that we had an anniversary, 35 years, and this should be acknowledged in our own innovative way. So I hunkered down, I studied, I listened to Jill Lepore's podcast, Who Killed Truth?, I read Mashiko Kakutani's The Death of Truth and started to think about a quest for truth in our city, in Los Angeles, seeking lost histories among marginalized communities. And then I got curious about the pandemic. I read John Barry's 550-page book on the influenza about the 1918 pandemic, the so-called Spanish flu, I read The Allegory Blindness by Jose 
Saramago, A Dark Vision of Human Nature. I read Susan Sontag's Illness is a Metaphor, and then I read the huge humanistic stories of the Decameron told during the plague. Hmm, 2020. The Decameron is a series of 10, seven men and three women, 10 days, 10 stories for 10 days. I selected the second story of the second day to choreograph and perform on that cycle. I decided to start the quest on October 1st and culminate the final experience on October 10th. My birthday, 10-10-2020. I don't know much about numbers, but that sounded lucky to me, and we could all use some sunshine and stable ground. So, I hope you will come and check out these 10 premieres in 10 different sites. Small plates, that's what I'm calling them now in honor of Jonathan Gold. All consume safely at a distance. Pick and choose or enjoy the entire buffet and discover something riveting about making art in this time of constraint and unbridled passion. Thank you so much, Heidi. In our episode description, we'll include a link to the Heidi Deckler Dance website, which has complete information about how and where to watch The Quest um, and information about the company's many other projects and initiatives. All right. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. We will be back next week for more discussion of the news that's moving the dance world. Keep learning, keep advocating, and keep dancing. Mind how you go, friends. Bye, everyone. The Dance Edit Podcast is a product of Dance Media, publisher of Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, Point, Dance Teacher, Dance Business Weekly, and the Dance Edit Newsletter. Our hosts are Courtney Escoyne, Margaret Fuhrer, Lydia Murray, and Cadence Neenan. Our music is by Celestine, with special thanks to Broadway Dance Center for helping us record those football sounds. Find out more about the Dance Edit and subscribe to our daily newsletter at thedanceedit.com. Thank you.